1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may, that you may proclaim the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Good afternoon and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. We're going to be looking tonight at the first couple of chapters in 1 Peter. We're going to take some excerpts from 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2 and talk for a few minutes about a picture of God's people. And really when you look at what the Apostle Peter sets forth in his short epistle, you find that he does a very, I think a very good job describing what it means to be a child of God. And so we're going to be looking at that in just a moment. Before we do so, we want to take this opportunity to welcome all who are present tonight. To those who are visiting, as always, we want to encourage you to come back and be with us at every occasion that you have. As Brother Dio mentioned a moment ago, we do have a number of visitors with us, and we are very privileged, I think, week to week to have visitors with us. We have some who are looking for church homes, and we want to encourage you to consider the work here. And we would love to have you come and join hands with us as we strive to make New Testament Christianity known in this community. Let's look at 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2 for just a moment or two tonight as we think about a picture of God's people. When you think about a New Testament Christian, what comes to your mind? There are a lot of people in our world and even some within the church who have a distorted picture of what it means to be a child of God, to be a follower of the Lord. And yet I believe that in the scriptures we can find some very beautiful pictures of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, our desire, our intent in life is to follow in his footsteps. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And so tonight, let's just think for a moment or two about what it means to be a child of God and note some of the pictures that the Apostle Peter paints for us relative to being a child of the living God. First of all, let me suggest that we are a purchased people. And this is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, down through verse 21. When we think about the fact that we are a purchased people, emphasis ought to be on the fact that Christ, our Savior, has saved us from sin. And there are two things that I think Peter points out in these verses. First of all, he talks about the price of our redemption. What did it cost for us to enjoy a spiritual relationship with God the Father? Well. Peter tells us it cost Christ his precious blood. Note, if you would, in verse 18, Peter said, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. But rather in verse 19 he said, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so the price of our redemption was the blood of Jesus Christ. Now over and over again the scriptures talk about the importance of the blood of Christ. Without the blood of Christ we would be lost. We would have no hope. As a matter of fact the Hebrew writer said in 
Hebrews chapter 9, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Well, God in His infinite mercy decreed that the Christ should come into the world and that through His sacrifice, the penalty for sin would, would be paid and the purchase price would be the blood of His only begotten Son. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, the Apostle Paul said, In Him or in whom we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, John in writing in the latter part of the first century would speak of Christ and say, Unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. In Revelation chapter 4, we have what might be called a picture of the throne room of Almighty God. In chapter 5, there is a picture of the throne room of the Lamb of God, that being Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in Revelation chapter 5, John speaks of Christ and said he has redeemed us to God by his blood of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And so Jesus paid the price for our sins. Now, bear in mind that those of us who belong to the body of Christ, that is the church, we are members of this great institution because of the shed blood of the Son of God. When the Apostle Paul spoke to the elders of the church of Ephesus while in Miletus, he would say in verse 28 of chapter 20 in the book of Acts, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. If you are a member of the church of Christ, you ought to thank Almighty God because you are a member of a blood-bought institution, an institution that was paid for by the Son of God. And so we talk about the price of our redemption, but also Peter speaks of the plan of redemption. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 20. He said, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope might be in God. God had a plan in place before the world began. Now that's hard for us to, to comprehend. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of things in the scriptures that, it is difficult, that's that are difficult for us to literally wrap our minds around. And yet John in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 speaks of the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. God had a plan in place. That plan involved his son. Jesus, as you well know, is an eternal being. He is the second member of the Godhead. And thus in an effort to fulfill the will of his heavenly father, he came to earth. The purpose for coming to what we call a sin-cursed earth was to save us, to redeem us, to deliver us from this present evil age, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 1 at verse 4. And so this plan was in place. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden, God intervened on behalf of fallen humanity and set in motion what is called the scheme of redemption. And so in verse 15, he speaks of the promised seed who is to come. In Genesis chapter 12, he calls on a man by the name of Abraham. 
And he said that in Abraham, that is through the lineage of Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. That, that promise made to Abraham nearly 4,000 years ago would find its primary fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why Paul could say when, when he wrote to the saints in Galatia, that if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 at verse 3. Now sometimes we talk about God's plan of redemption and we think about it in a generic way. And maybe one of the problems is we do not think about it in a personal way. What I would, what I would re recommend to all of us is this to sit down and go through the scriptures and read the verses that outline God's plan of redemption and read those passages of scripture from a personal vantage point, realizing that God had you in mind when he sent his son to die for your sins. Think for a minute about the apostle Paul. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he would say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul understood that he was a sinner and that because of God in his infinite grace and mercy, he could become a follower of the Lord. He could enjoy salvation. And so over in Galatians chapter 2 at verse 20, you have Paul the Christian who said, I have been crucified with Christ. And the life that I now live, I live by faith. Faith in the Son of God, listen to him, who loved me and gave himself for me. For the Apostle Paul, Christianity was very real. If you were to have, if you were to have had the opportunity to, have sit, to sit down and talk to the Apostle Paul one-on-one -on -one and to converse with him about his life as a Jew and his life as a New Testament Christian, I think one of the things that would stand out is the fact that Paul believed sincerely and genuinely that Christ died for his sins. Paul believed it in a very personal way. And so over and over again, Paul talks about his affection, his love for the Lord, his willingness to, to spend his energies and efforts for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so... Redemption ought to be something very personal to each of us. And so we talk about the price of redemption and the plan of redemption. But then there's a second thing that we find in looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. And that is we are a purified people. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, the, the apostle Peter accentuates the purification of sin by the Lord that we enjoy. As his people. And so in verse 22, he would say, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeign love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. So, what about this purification that we enjoy? Well, I would suggest that there is a correlation in our purification, our redemption, and Scripture. You see, the Apostle Peter said, We have purified our souls in obeying the truth. Let's think for a moment about the importance of truth. 
Many, many centuries ago, Pontius Pilate asked the question to Jesus Christ, what is truth? Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. How important is truth to those of us who live today? Well, without truth, we cannot be saved. Jesus would say in John 8, verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you do not know the truth of God, then you cannot be saved. How do I know that? Because the Bible, in a very explicit way, informs us that we have to understand some basic fundamental truths set forth in the pages of the Bible. Take, for example, what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 when he wrote to the saints at Rome. He said, But God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form or that pattern of doctrine delivered unto you. So here were people that had, had been the recipients of God's word. They had looked at this word as a divine pattern. They responded in faith to what, has, what had been revealed, and thus they became members of the body of Christ. They were no longer the servants of sin, but rather they had become the slaves or servants of righteousness. The importance of divine truth. We live in a day and time when many people minimize the importance of truth. As a matter of fact, there are some today that say you can't know the truth. There's just no way that you and I, with our finite minds, can comprehend the truth of Almighty God. Well, that's interesting because Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's interesting that Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3 that God gave him revelation and that he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words whereby when you read, he would say, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul would say, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The importance of truth. You and I need the truth of God in our lives. I think that's why Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. Make sure that truth is kept at your side. Make sure that you honor it, that you live by it. No wonder the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my pathway. In Psalm 119, 105. There's a second thing that Peter points out. We talk about this purification process that comes through a result of obeying the truth of Almighty God. But then also Peter accentuates the indestructible nature of God's word. Listen to him in verse 24. Well, before we look at verse 24, let me just point this out. In verse 23, Peter said, We have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. When you and I obey the truth of Almighty God, and the truth of Almighty God is what informs us about the new birth, that is where we contact the blood of Jesus Christ. Go back and look at Ephesians 2 verse 12 where Paul said that those who are outside of a spiritual relationship with the Lord, that they are without hope and without God in the world. But in verse 13 he said, But now you who were once far off are made nigh or brought near by the blood of Christ. How do you appropriate the blood of Christ? You have to go where it was shed. Where was it shed? In the death of the only begotten Son of God. John 19, verse 34. Jesus shed His blood where? On Calvary's cross, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Thus, those who comply with the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 in His conversation with Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus was a ruler among the Jewish people. He was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus by night. And he said, Rabbi, or teacher, we know. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do the signs which you do 
unless God be with him. Jesus then said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about a physical birth. And so he asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? The Lord then said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We take the message that has been revealed by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. We obey that divine truth, and thus what happens? We appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ. When is all this consummated? Well, when we have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, John 8, verse 24. When we repent of our sins, Acts 2, verse 38. When we confess His name before others, and then when we are baptized into Christ, that, at that juncture, we are placed within the body of Christ, and then, and only then, do we enjoy every spiritual blessing known to man. Among those spiritual blessings, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so we experience what is called the new birth. Now, having said that, look now at verse 24. Because in verse 24, the latter part of verse 23 as well, Peter talks about the indestructible nature of truth. He said, the word of God lives and abides forever. Note the contrast. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers. He said, its flower fades away or falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There have been a lot of people down through the ages that have done their very best to destroy God's holy word. They've done everything humanly possible to circumvent this book that we call truth, the Bible. And guess what? It remains. I believe through the providence of Almighty God, we have the word intact before us today. It is the inspired word of the living God, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It has everything pertinent, to our understanding of life and godliness, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, Peter quotes Isaiah the prophet, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 8, where Isaiah, where Isaiah said, the word of our God stands forever. Here's what Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. God's word is here to stay. As a matter of fact, this book, will one day be opened at the judgment. You see, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word, the same shall judge him in the last day. The Bible says that the judgment of God is according to truth, Romans 2 at verse 2. So the indestructible nature of the truth. Thirdly, in our study tonight, as we think about a picture of God's people, let me suggest that we are a priesthood of people. That is, we are a priestly people. There are no distinctions made among God's people in the sense that there, there are no certain classes that designate believers. There is not a certain segment that wears the name or title priest. All of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ are priests. Now, with that in mind, look, if you would, at verse 5. In verse 5, Peter said, You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, that you might offer up spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God by or through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he would say, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when we talk about the fact that we are a priesthood of people, we are a priestly group of people, here's what we need to understand. Priests do what? They offer sacrifices, don't they? Well, if all of us are priests, then it would only stand to reason that we are to offer sacrifices unto Almighty God. What kind of sacrifices are we talking about? Well, let me just suggest that we are to offer as a sacrifice our body unto Jehovah God. In Romans chapter 12 at verse 1, the Apostle Paul would say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service. Why is it that we offer unto God our body? Let me just answer that the best I know how. Because it belongs to Him. When you obeyed the gospel, God, God became your owner, your master, your ruler. He is the one that owns you lock, stock, and barrel. Look again at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Some translations say a peculiar people or his own special people. If you have obeyed the gospel, you belong to God. You are His. I think about people that go into the military. When you go into the military and you sign those papers, guess what? You belong to the United States government. They own you lock, stock, and barrel. When you obey the gospel of Christ, you are owned by God in heaven. And so Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at verse 19, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God. You are not your own, but rather you are bought with a price. Now listen to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I don't know how Paul could be any plainer. Paul is saying here that if you belong to the Lord, if you are a part of his body, you belong to him. He owns you. And because he owns you, he wants you to live to His glory and to His good. Where do we glorify God? In the church, Ephesians 3, verse 21. Now, we talk about the spiritual sacrifices that we offer unto God. And we have emphasized the fact that we are to offer unto God our body as a living sacrifice. Let's just think about the human body for a moment and how there is a correlation between our body and the sacrifices that we offer unto Jehovah God. Let me suggest that we begin by offering unto Almighty God, we begin by offering Him our heart. God wants your heart. He wants the affection that you have within your heart. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, all of our mind. He said this is the first and great commandment. We talk about the heart and the fact that we have this wonderful organ pumping blood throughout our veins. 
That is, in the human body. That's not the heart we're talking about, though. We're talking about the inner man. And Solomon would say in the long ago, guard your heart with all vigilance or all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Why do we need to make sure that our heart is pure? Well, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here's what the Lord also said in Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He would say, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. We're talking about offering unto God our heart as a spiritual sacrifice. God is interested in what kind of heart? A pure heart. The kind of heart that would be pleasing in his eyes. John would tell us that we are to purify ourselves even as he also is pure in 1 John chapter 3. So we give unto God our heart, but also our mind. The mind, the heart, we're talking about our thoughts. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 5, he would say, bringing every thought into subjection unto the captivity of Christ. Let me just ask this question in our study. Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you think like the Lord? If you think like the Lord, guess what? You will act like the Lord. If you do not think like the Lord, then it only stands to reason you're not going to act like the Lord. What we're trying to do is develop a mindset that is Christ-like. That's why when Paul would write to the church at Philippi, he would say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, developing the mind of Jesus Christ. But then also with regard to our sacrifices, the sacrifices that we offer unto God. We give Him our heart. We give Him our mind. We also are instructed to give Him our eyes. The psalmist said in the long ago, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Now, I said a moment ago that priests offer unto God sacrifices. Under the old covenant, the Levites were the priestly tribe of people. And they had specific duties. They were to offer unto God those sacrifices that he had set forth in his word under the law of Moses. Well, you and I, we are to offer unto God sacrifices. Those sacrifices include our body. When we talk about our body, we stress our mind, our thoughts, our heart, but also our eyes. What do you watch on television? What do you read? What do you look at on the Internet? Did you know that there are some people within the body of Christ who when it comes to sacrifice have yet to yield to the will of Almighty God and offer unto the Lord their eyes as a sacrifice. We have to be careful. We live in an age in which there are so many things before us and it's very easy for us to get, up, get caught up watching things that we as God's people should not watch. So we have to be careful. That's why the psalmist would say, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Why? Well, because what goes in will come out. 
As someone has said in the long ago, garbage in, garbage out. We want to make sure that we are putting in the right kind of products in our, in our lives. That is, we want to make sure that we are feeding on the right kind of things. Because as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we give him our eyes, but also our ears. Jesus would say in Matthew 13, verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. James would say, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. How well do you listen to the word of God? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks about his death. And he encourages the apostles, the disciples, to let these words sink down into your ears. What you and I need to do is take the word of God and let it sink deep into the recesses of our heart. How do we do that? By our ears. Now we talk about what are we listening to. There are a lot of things that we could listen to in the world today, but what we really need to listen to is God's word. We need to make sure that we pay careful attention to what God in His Word, what God through His Word has set forth. So we talk about a sacrifice of the eyes, the ears, but also the lips. The Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, that we are, we are to offer unto God the fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise. Every time we come together, one of the things we do as a collective body of people is to sing praise unto God. Singing praise unto God accomplishes a couple of things. One, in so doing, we give God glory. In other words, we glorify His name. We, we praise Him. Another byproduct is we teach and admonish one another. And so there, there are basically two byproducts to singing praise to God. But the singing that we do is a spiritual sacrifice offered unto Jehovah God. Let me also suggest that we offer unto God our hands. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, that he may have to give to him which has not, which hath not. And the idea is that we use our hands to the glory of Almighty God. And then let me suggest that we offer unto God our feet. In Romans chapter 10, Paul would say, How beautiful are the feet of them which bring glad tidings of good things. What are they doing? They are going house to house, city to city, nation to nation, kingdom to kingdom, preaching and teaching the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And so we are a priestly group of people. What a great blessing. And then finally and fourthly, let me suggest that we are a pilgrim people. The idea of being a pilgrim is underscored by Peter in verse 11. And really, what we're talking about here is the fact that we are sojourners. You and I, we are, we are simply passing through planet Earth. What does it mean to be a pilgrim, a sojourner? Listen, listen to what Peter said in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Two things I want, to, I want to stress here. Number one, we are building for the promised land. There are a lot of people that miss this. And let me, just, let me just say this. There are a lot of people in the church that miss this. There are a lot of people within the church of Christ that are building for any and everything 
but they're not building toward heaven. Are you building for the promised land? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, I would imagine that all of us have bank accounts here on earth, and that's good. But let me tell you what, you better have a bank account in heaven. If you expect to go to heaven, you better make sure that you are making regular deposits into heaven's bank account. If you're not, guess what? You're going to miss out. You and I, we need to be building for the promised land. I don't know of anybody in the church who doesn't want to go to heaven. Matter of fact, if I, I guess if we were to go outside and begin walking down the street and polling people as they passed us by, if we were to ask them, do you want to go to heaven? I suspect that each and every person that we passed by would say yes. I don't know if anybody doesn't want to go to heaven. The problem, though, is that people are not making preparation to go to heaven. You've got to plan to go to heaven. You've got, you've got to build for the promised land. You've got to be making adequate preparation to go to heaven. It's not something that just happens. It's not something that just by way of accident you land in heaven. It's something you've been planning for. You've been working for it. You've been looking for it. You've been anticipating going to heaven. I think about Christians as they, as they approach the end of, of their sojourn here on planet earth. Matter of fact, I, I think about people that I've had the opportunity to, to conduct their funerals for. Members of the church. And to me, the silver lining in each and every funeral that I conduct for a faithful member of the church is this. I understand the heartache and the sorrow and the sadness that come with the loss of a loved one. But listen, we are eulogizing a person that has gone to be with the Lord. They are, they are now in the presence of God. That's what they were living for. That's what they had been living for and anticipating throughout their Christian life. Why? Because they made adequate preparation. They were planning. If you were to take a trip, don't you think you'd sit down and, and maybe map out where you're going to go? You'd put some thought into it. You'd make some plans. You'd make adequate preparation. Well, if you want to go to heaven, the same is true. So first of all, we have to build toward heaven. Secondly, not only are we building toward the promised land, but I would suggest we are bound for the promised land. If you're not bound for the promised land, let me tell you what. You need to make some changes in your life today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but rather today. I want you to think for a moment about the Apostle Paul. Look at the life of Paul and look how he lived. Paul lived as if he were, he, well, he lived as if, he were on the cusp of heaven every day. He would say in Philippians chapter 1, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. When he wrote to the saints in Philippi, he would say that there are some who mine earthly things. There, there are people that are not building toward that promised land. But he said, our citizenship, our commonwealth 
is in heaven. Whence also we wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. In Colossians chapter 3, at verse 1, he would say, If you then have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection, set your mind on things above, and not on things which are on this earth. You and I are bound for the promised land. We're living in anticipation of one day being with Almighty God in heaven itself. When I think about living a life that is bound for the promised land, one of the, one of the things that comes to my mind are the beautiful songs that we sing that accentuate heaven. How many songs are in our hymn book that talk about heaven? Why do you think that is? Because that's the ultimate goal of a child of God. We ought to be living and expressing that beautiful hymn that says, I am bound for the promised land. We ought to be the kind of people we know where we're going. We're going home to be with God. Now, Peter would say, as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, there are a lot of people in our world today, they have literally hooked their wagon to the world. What you and I want to do is anchor our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, to live with a heavenly mindset, to recognize that this world and all the things that accompany this world will one day be destroyed. This world will not survive the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the Hebrew writer said, we're seeking that city to come. He said, we have here no abiding city, but we seek that city to come in Hebrews 13. He would speak of the patriarchs of old who look for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What about you? Let me just ask this question in closing. What we've talked about tonight, is that a picture of your life? When we talk about Peter's picture of God's people, does that represent you as a child of God? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. We want you to live in such a way so that you are bound with the promised land. We're on our way to Canaan, and we want you to go with us. If you're here and you've not obeyed the gospel, why not do as they did on Pentecost Day? Be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2, verse 38. In so doing, God will add you to the church. Acts 2, 47. And if you'll live faithfully until death, the promise is the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10. If you're unfaithful, why not come home? Come back tonight as we stand and sing.